Psalm 112. It can be found on page 509 in the Pew Bible, if you would like to follow along there. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He is distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. Let's pray. Lord, we came before you earlier with a prayer of praise, and now we come before you with a prayer of thanksgiving. And we sit here in gratitude of the many works that you have done in our lives and in many others' lives throughout history. Lord, I thank you for faithful men like David, the men of faith, of Abraham, the fathers of the faith, and for your word that has written out their stories for us so that we can also learn to know and love you. Lord, I thank you for your sovereignty today with all that is going on in our world. We can trust in your sovereignty and we are so grateful for that. Thank you that we have the opportunity to be here this morning in person, together, congregating as a body to worship you and to bow down before you. And thank you for this opportunity that we have to hear from your word, to be fed by it, to grow in our knowledge and understanding of you. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning. What a treat to be with y'all again. Uh, just so you know, because uh, I've, I've been where you are. Actually, I, I spent all of my time where y'all are. Uh, if you're wondering why is my finger like this, I, I cut myself last night. All is well. I'm, I'm just fine, so y'all can put that off, off to the side now. Uh, it's not a sign or anything, a gangster sign or anything. Uh, so <clears throat> we continue in the book of Psalms this week. Uh, actually, we, we finish our time in Psalms this week. I have thoroughly enjoyed our time in Psalms. This has been a, a rich summer uh, for me to, to learn and grow, and I hope that the same has been true for you. We mentioned uh, last week that we're in the, the fifth book of Psalms with Psalm 112. It goes from Psalm 107 to Psalm 150, and as a reminder, uh, Psalm 107 to 110 focuses on the coming of the Messianic King. And then we have this Psalm 111 and Psalm 112. As we go through the preaching of the Word, uh, Today, I encourage you to have your Bible open. Uh, if you don't have one with you, there should be one in the pew. Uh, the more that, that we can be people who are in the Word, uh, studying the Word, uh, taking everything that, that I say and measuring it against what the Word says, 
that's, that's the people we want to be. So as, as we go through this, uh, we're going to compare Psalm 111 and Psalm 112. As you mentioned, they're a matched pair. Uh, they, they, they go together quite nicely. We'll look at them side by side. Psalm 111 declares the works of a righteous God, and Psalm 112 declares the works of a, the attributes of a righteous man. You can think about this the same way as the sun and the moon, the relationship between the two. The sun beams its light. The moon is just a rock, and it reflects the glory, the brilliance of the sun. It's reflecting Psalm 111 declares the glory of God, and Psalm 112 it speaks of the, the reflection of that divine brightness in men from above. They're both an acrostic of the Hebrew alphabet, and they would start in successive order from, uh, from verse 2 going on. Last week we talked about the, the righteous works of the Lord through the fulfillment of the covenant relationship with us. We said that that Jesus Christ fulfilled the covenant of works and that he became the mediator between you and God. The righteousness of the mediator, as I've I've studied uh, this week, uh, I'm sure now that the, the righteousness of the mediator is celebrated in this psalm. Jesus Christ is worthy to be lifted up in songs of praise. Especially since we're taught, um, Psalm chapter 71, verse 16 says, With the mighty deeds of the Lord, I will come. I will remind them of your righteousness, yours alone. So church, Jesus Christ is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. And when we look at this, at this text, 111 and 112, This was written to a Hebrew people. So he is from Aleph, the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet, to Tal, the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. He is everything in between. That's who we're talking about today. Jesus is our model as we study the righteous man in this psalm. We we look to Christ, and he makes us righteous. Now, when you, when you look at Psalm 112, you might be tempted to do a few things. And uh, I want to I get these out in front before, before we even dig in. The first temptation might be to say, oh, you know, we're simply looking at a, a character study of, of the, the perfect man. I'll never be perfect. I won't even come close. So this psalm doesn't really pertain to me. It's just something that's way far out there. Don't fall into that trap. The truth is that the Lord has been gracious and kind to give us his word, inspired by the Holy Spirit to teach us, to nurture us, to convict us, to prod us. As we work through that slow, refining process of looking more like this man that we see in Psalm 112. The second temptation. By the way, these temptations are there because I struggled with them as I was preparing, so... You may also be tempted to look at the psalm as a litany of shoulds and oughts. You know, I come to church and all I get is this, you should do this, you ought to be doing that. That's not what this is. This is not a litany of shoulds and oughts. This should not exhaust you, so don't fall into that trap. The truth is, outside, the wor- outside of the Lord working in you through his spirit, drawing you close to him, 
you don't have the ability to do anything listed in this psalm. You can try. I've tried before. I've known other men, other women who have tried before, and they give all their willpower, everything they've got to be what is in this psalm, and they fall flat on their face because they don't lean on the only one who can help them to live out this psalm perfectly, and that's Jesus Christ. The third temptation. You may be tempted to to read parts of the psalm and, and well with pride. As we go through these verses, you might read some of these and say, yeah, that's me. That's who I am. I'm that person. I encourage you to look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. It says, for it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified have one source. So the, the theme of this, of this psalm, Psalm 112, is God's redeeming grace enacted on us through Christ produces a fear of him and rich blessings that serve to reflect his glory. Broken this into to three parts. First is uh, verse 1, calling that the fearing the Lord leads to delight in his commands. Then verse 2 through 8, attributes and blessings of the God-fearing. And 9 and 10, righteous by Christ alone. Let's look at the text. Verse 1, praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord who greatly delights in his commandments. There's a cycle in Psalm 11, 111 and Psalm 112, and I want us to to see this. Here's how the, the cycle starts. It starts with fearing the Lord. When we looked at Psalm 99, the holiness of God, who God is, he is to be feared. This starts with the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord will move you to studying his word because you want to know him. You fear him and you want to understand him. You want to understand his ways. And as you study his word, then you begin to, to delight in his commands. As you study God's word, you begin to delight in his commands. So let me give you an example. I really enjoy hunting. And this time of year, to be, to be honest with you all, this time of year, I'm about ready for summer to be over. That's just the way I am. I'm not, not a huge fan of, of heat, heat, heat. Maybe I live in the wrong part of the country, but I love you people. I'm going to stay here. But this time of year, I always begin to think about dove season coming around the corner. Dove season is in September, and it's followed by whitetail season that starts in November. So I have a healthy fear of the Texas Parks and Wildlife Commission. Primarily, the game warden. Now, the game warden, he doesn't need a warrant to come on my property and check things out. He can just show up whenever he wants to. He, can, he doesn't even have to knock on the gate. He can climb over the fence and come check on things whenever he wants to. When the game warden shows up unexpectedly, you better be ready. 
you better have crossed your T's and dotted your I's or he's going to take out his little ticket book and he's going to start writing you tickets and it's not going to be a fun hunting trip any longer. When I was younger, I took the hunter safety course. Every year when I go to one of the local establishments to buy my hunting license, I always get the outdoor annual. I love reading the outdoor annual because it tells me the rules and regulations. It, uh, it keeps me out of trouble. It feels good to know that I can hunt and take care of my responsibilities. I know how to act. I know how to present myself. And I know how to be around other people who are hunting as well. And I appreciate the thought that, that the many have put into creating the laws and, and the regulations around hunting for, for, for safety, for sport, uh, for, for all those who participate. I fear the game warden. I study his rules and regulations, and I delight in what has been created so that I can enjoy hunting. All right, for those of you who are a little more intellectual, uh, I'll pull out Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers. All right. He says, he rejoices in the precepts of godliness and delights greatly in them. We have known hypocrites rejoice in the doctrines but never in the commandments. Ungodly men may in some measure obey the commandments out of fear, but only a gracious man will observe them with delight. Cheerful obedience is the only acceptable obedience. He who obeys reluctantly is disobedient at heart, but he who takes pleasure in the command is truly loyal. If through divine grace we find ourselves described in these two sentences, let us give all the praise to God, for he hath wrought all our works in us and the dispositions out of which they spring. Let self-righteous men praise themselves, but he who has been made righteous by grace renders all the praise to the Lord. So hunting or Charles Spurgeon, take your pick. They're both about the same thing. As we move to verse 2 through 8, the attributes and blessings of the God-fearing. We see first, how, how is this righteous man blessed? He's blessed in two ways. Through his children and through wealth. Let's take a look at it. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. This is not a prosperity promise. Regardless of your station in life, your children will be better off if you study his word, delight in his commands, and teach that to them. The wealth is not what our society says is the wealth. The wealth comes from understanding who he is, passing that down to your children. I've talked with many of you. There was a time in your life before you came to saving faith in Christ as you raised your children, and there's you can attest to what it means when you have not taught your children well. It doesn't work out well. As a church, the reason that we're all together and throughout all the generations is so that we can learn from one another and share those stories with each other. Verse 3, wealth and riches are in his house and his righteousness endures forever. 
want you to look at Psalm 111.3, right next to it. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. Again, this is not a prosperity promise. That by following these biblical principles, everything's going to, to work out better. That you're going to have vast riches within your house. But it does mean that you're a good steward with those things that the Lord has given to you. And I have to ask a question. If you gain riches or wealth, will you remain steadfast to the word? The, the psalm, it, uh, I, in, in my line of work, uh, I work with, with wealthy families primarily for, for my day job. And one thing I've learned over, over the years is that all money does is turns the volume up on any issues that are in a person's heart, in a family. If there are issues of, of pride and you throw a $3 million inheritance on them, and then you can see how siblings fight. If there's an issue of lacking humility and now somebody has come into money, you see how they use that money for, for power. So whether you have riches or not, you're still held accountable to this same, this same piece. The psalm moves in, in verse 4 to 9, and, and it shows you know, what does the righteous man look like? So, so the righteous man is gracious, merciful, righteous, never moved, remembered forever, not afraid, Firm heart, trusting the Lord, steady heart, not afraid, distributes freely to the poor, and his horn is exalted. Let's look at verse 4. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. You know, there, none of us is without the ability to come in to a point of, of dark times in your life. Uh, there are dark times for the upright. You can't read your word enough. You cannot pray enough to make yourself immune from life happening, from bad things happening, from difficult situations to come up. But the righteous man holds fast to the promise of light to come out of darkness. And, you know, that, that's even true in the final hours of life. We're all going to pass away unless the Lord comes, and I hope that he does. We're all going to pass away. There will come a time when you have some sickness, some illness, some malady that took place, and it is going to take your life. And this verse is true even in your death for the believer. As dark as that time might be, the righteous know that there's light on the other side. So there is no reason to fear even in that time of death Look at uh, Psalm 111.4. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. All right, we'll go back to Spurgeon again. He's really good. He is gracious and full of compassion and righteous. This is spoken of God in the fourth verse of the 111th Psalm. And now the same words are used of his servant. Thus we are taught that when God makes a man upright, 
He makes him like himself. We are at best but humble copies of the great original. Still, we're copies. And because we are, so we praise the Lord, who hath created us anew in Christ Jesus. Let's look at verse 5. It is well with a man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. You know, it shouldn't be a surprise to us that the righteous man is wise. After all, going back to our cycle, right? When you look at verse 10 of, of 111, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and all those who practice it have a good understanding. The, the righteous man makes good decisions with their finances, they're good in business, they're wise. We're not to see somebody who's wise, a good business person, and does well in this world as having done something evil to get to that point. The righteous man has enough to to lend, to be generous with others. Moving to verse 6. For the righteous will never be moved, he will be remembered forever. So the righteous man... He's able to stick around. He doesn't have to be fly by night. He can stay in a community for decades because he lived in a righteous way. That doesn't mean if you've moved that you're unrighteous, but it means that you can stay in one place. You can have taken care of your business in a manner that was respectable. He can hold his head high in the public square, not because he's proud, but because he knows that he's done right by the people that are around him. Verse 7. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. A righteous man has a settled spirit. You're going to have bad news. It comes your way. Are you going to have a settled spirit when that comes? Or are you going to try to bear up under yourself, under what you can bring, and get through this? Or are you going to be settled and know that, Father, you are sovereign in all affairs of man? The righteous man, is, he's not fickle. He waits on the Lord. He's not shaken by the news of the day. The righteous man places all his trust in the Lord even in those most trying circumstances. It's a joy to see y'all do this. It's a joy to know y'all, to spend time with y'all, and see in trying circumstances that you continue to point to Christ. You continue to look to him for your hope. You don't try to bear up by yourself. Your marriage is struggling and you reach out. You got an illness that came and, see, I need help. You're scared. You're dying of cancer. You press into each other. It's beautiful. That's what a righteous man does. Verse 8, his heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. Okay. Can I go to Spurgeon one more time? It'll be the last time, I promise. His love to God is deep 
and true. His confidence as God is firm and unmoved. His courage has a firm foundation and is supported by omnipotence, the all-powerful God. He has become settled by experience and confirmed by years. He is not a rolling stone, but a pillar in the house of the Lord. He shall not be afraid. He is ready to face any adversary. A holy heart gives a brave face. Move to verse 9 and 10. The righteous, so righteous by Christ alone. Verse 9, he is distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. I don't know how better to put this, but the the righteous man, and this is me going back to a little more of the countryside, but the, the righteous man, he knows that everything comes from the Lord. Everything flows to him from the Lord, and he desires to be a pipe, a conduit that takes everything from the Lord and pushes it out in other places within his life. He wants to move the blessing from the Father to bless other people. He's a conduit. He's a pipe. Probably should have stuck with Spurgeon, but... He knows that it's, it's more blessed to give than to receive. The righteous man's life is, is the result of principle. His actions flow from a settled, a sure, fixed convictions. And therefore, his, his integrity, it's maintained when, when others fail. He's steadfast. Did y'all notice in verse 9, his horn is exalted in honor? Let's talk about this horn. You need to understand the, the horn as a, in, in, in this case, as a symbol of, of strength, of honor, of dignity, uh, that God rewards the, the righteous with honor. He exalts those who fear him with with stature and strength and dignity. So if I had an extra 30 minutes, I might spend, I might spend it doing this, but I'm gonna, I won't do this to you, but I might start with Hannah's beautiful prayer in 1 Samuel and how the Lord used her son, Samuel, to anoint David's head with oil from the horn when God chose David to be the future king of Israel. You know, we could, we could spend a little time talking about the, the promise that was given to David through Nathan's vision in 2 Samuel, that, that David's offspring would, would create an eternal kingdom that would reign forever. We could, we could even spend a little time, this would be fun, we could, we could talk about Daniel chapter 7 with the ten horns and the prophecy of of how the ancient of days, one of my favorite words for Jesus Christ, the ancient of days, how the ancient of days would come and establish a kingdom that would reign forever. Now we, we, could, we could spend a little time talking about, remember Zechariah, when his little boy, John, was born? 
that the prophecy that, that he gave. He said, Blessed be the Lord, God of Israel, for he has visited the redeemed and visited and redeemed his people and, catch this, has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of this servant David. If you'd still bear with me, you know, we, we could even talk about how Jesus was, was lifted up into heaven after his life and death and resurrection. How he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father to come again to judge the living and the dead. His horn is exalted in honor. Let's move to 10. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. This 10th this verse, it's, uh, it's so it forcibly, it, it contrasts the righteous with the ungodly. The comparison that makes the, the, the blessedness of, godly, of the godly appear all the more remarkable. During our discussion last week, we, we talked about the, the covenant relationship between God and man. We discussed the, the promised blessing for fulfilling the covenant and the promised curse for not living up to the covenant. The psalm ends on a, a solemn note. The ungodly see the example of the, of the saints to, to the righteous as their own condemnation. They see the happiness of the godly and it only increases their eternal misery. The ungodly, they, they see the, the blessing given to the righteous and it causes him to gnaw his heart out. He hates it. He becomes so angry that he, he can't change the righteous man from being held tight by the Lord. He wants so badly to destroy the righteous. He wants so badly to destroy the righteous man that he grinds his teeth because he can't grind that person to a pulp like he wants to. Remember how the Pharisees, how they treated Jesus during his ministry? And during his kangaroo trial that they put him through. The ungodly, the ungodly, they melt away as if they never existed. Look at that in comparison to the righteous man who delights in his commandments. We're brought back to the, the curse of the covenant of works. That curse, remember, is, is physical, it's emotional, it's spiritual, it's eternal death and separation from God. And then we look to Jesus as the only one who makes us righteous. I ask you to turn in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30.
And because of him, you were in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boast, boast in the Lord. Church, there is no wisdom, there's no righteousness, there's no sanctification, there's no redemption outside of the saving work of Jesus Christ. Psalm 111.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The theme for this song, I'll repeat it. I want you to capture it. God's redeeming grace enacted on us through Christ produces a fear of him and rich blessings that serve to reflect his glory. Let's spend a few minutes talking about one of the words that you heard in 1 Corinthians, sanctification. Sanctus, holy. Sanctus, 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 holy, holy, holy. You could think of it as holification. You could think of it as becoming holy. How do you do it? It's through the process of sanctification. Sanctification is that progressive work, the progressive work of God and man takes two to be sanctified that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. If you're taking notes, please write down Romans chapter 6. Would you camp out in Romans chapter 6 this week? This next month, this next year, so we can study sanctification? I'll do it with you. It's that work that continues through all of your life that is never finished until the day you die. It is the work that you do, it is the work that God does in you and you do with him to become more like this holy God, more like this man in Psalm 112. So I gotta ask you, you know, as, as you look back over the, the last few years of your life, do you see a pattern of definite growth in sanctification? Are there... Really, like, think about it. Over the last three years, is there a pattern of growth in sanctification? Are there areas that, things that you loved, things that had you, strongholds that Satan had on your life, things you looked at incessantly, smoked, drank, whatever it is, that pride that was in you, that anger that was in you, is it a little, is it different? Over the last three years, is it different? You know, what, are, what are some things that, that you used to delight in that, that, you no long, that they no longer interest you? What are some things that you used to have no interest in doing 
that now they hold great interest for you. You hold steadfast to them and you couldn't get through your day without doing it. And before you could care less, it didn't cross your mind. As we wrap up, uh, I just want to share a few thoughts about sanctification for us to consider. First is that sanctification is a, it's a process. And it begins when you come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. If you're not a believer right now, don't worry about sanctification. Focus on the holiness of God. Look to Jesus to justify you so that you can start that work of sanctification. Second thing is, mentioned it a while ago, but it's, it's a work that will not be complete until the day you die. And there can be a temptation to, to have a sin in your life and you say, I've been a believer for a long time and that sin is persistent. It won't go away. That, that, that sin, it's, it's defeated me. So I'll keep coming to church and I'll, I'll keep working and growing in these other areas, but Satan's just got my number on this one. I give up. Maybe you say, uh, you know, I've struggled with porn for 10 years. I can't, I can't stop looking at porn. I try, but I can't. Maybe you've had a bad temper for the last 32 years. Maybe you've been an incessant liar for the last 25 years. You just can't tell the truth. I'll be this way till the day I die. Remember this, church. You must consider yourself dead to sin and alive in Christ. Sin does not have dominion over you. Camp out in Romans chapter 6 until it goes from here to here. You who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. Romans chapter 6, 17 and 18. A couple practical points on sanctification. It usually starts with changing things that you say, changing things that you do. Uh, Old destructive habits. Fits of anger, rage. Having a dirty mouth. And then, as you, as you progress from those things that you say and do, you're not finished yet, because there are other types of sin that are just as evil, if not more. They're sins of the heart. The motivations of your heart. Pride, self-righteousness, selfishness, a lack of courage. These things are just as sinful as those things that you say and those things that you do. 
So with sanctification, you and God, uh, you, you have a role in the process of sanctification. There is a temptation to say that um, the Holy Spirit is just going to, God, will, God is sanctifying me, he's, he's working these things out, I have no participation in this. And that's just not true. Yeah, the Lord is, Jesus, they, they all work together, the Holy Spirit, to guide you, to convict you, to counsel you, that's the work that God does in sanctification. But then we have, we have a role and a responsibility on our side as well. That, that active peace that, uh, where we strive to obey God's commands. I fear God. I study his word. I delight in his commands. I fear God. I study his word. I delight in his commands. This is the cycle that we continue through all of our days until we get to be with him in glory. Don't give up. And work together to help one another in this process of sanctification. Your sanctification, it brings so much joy. It brings great joy to us. As we grow in holiness... We grow in our conformity. We begin to look like him. We begin to look like that copy of him. This model here in Psalm 112. We begin to look like that righteous man. And the more and more beauty of his character begins to come out in our lives. So as we wrap up, it's, uh, I encourage you, you know, which topics in this psalm, we went through verse by verse, which topics here uh, need greater sanctification in your life? In your intellect, in your emotions, your actions, your physical body, where are those areas that you want to ask him to help you grow? And he will. Let's pray. Father, you you teach us about your character. Teach us about who who you are. About your righteous works. And then you make these claims that we can't look past. That we're your children, that we're made in your image. Lord, oftentimes we look at our own life and we see that we, we look so far different than who you look like in Psalm 111 and who this righteous man looks like in Psalm 112. Lord, you do the work of causing our hearts to fear you, causing our hearts to desire you, causing our, our desire to change so that we would study your word, 
that we would delight in your word that is true, authoritative, completely sufficient. Father, we we admit that we look elsewhere oftentimes to find the wisdom of the world. And Lord, you've given us all wisdom. Lord, help us to remember that we can tap into that wisdom if we would only fear you. Lord, guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus as we move through this week. In your holy name we pray. Amen.